Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about climate activism post-Trump. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. Current temperatures average 1 degree Celsius higher than 1880 when records became available worldwide. A controversial new climate study has found that even if greenhouse gas emissions were halted tomorrow, it might not be enough to stop temperatures from continuing to rise. The study, published in Science Reports, was conducted by two researchers at a Norwegian business school. They used a climate model to determine that, even if emissions ceased tomorrow, the permafrost would continue to thaw for hundreds of years. The publication is making an impact because it says we've passed the point of no return. Lead author and professor emeritus in climate strategy, Jorgen Randers said, quote, according to our models, humanity is beyond the point of no return when it comes to halting the melting of permafrost using greenhouse gas cuts as the single tool. If we want to stop this melting process, we must do something in addition. For example, suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and store it underground, or make the Earth's surface brighter, end quote. However, other scientists have pointed to the simplicity of the model Randers and his colleague Ulrich Goluk used and cautioned against misinterpreting their findings as a reason to give up on climate action. Quote, this paper clearly may be cited in support of a misleading message that it is now too late to avoid catastrophic climate change, which would have the potential to cause unnecessary despair, end quote. University of Exeter climate scientist Professor Richard Betts said in response. So what exactly does the study say? The researchers used their model to see what would happen by 2500 if emissions stopped today or if they slowly declined to zero by 2100. In the first scenario, temperatures would still rise to around 2.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels within the next 50 years taper off, and then rise again starting in 2150. By 2500, the world would be around 3 degrees Celsius warmer and sea levels would rise by about 10 feet. In the second, temperature and sea level rise would end up in the same place, but the temperature increase would be much faster. The reason for the persistent increase comes from three feedback loops, the model found. All three of the effects have been known for years. 
One, the melting of sea ice, which means that the sun's heat is absorbed into a darker ocean instead of reflected back by brighter ice. Two, the thawing of permafrost, which releases more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Three, increased moisture in the atmosphere, which in turn raises temperatures. The study authors were first to admit their findings were limited to one model. Penn State University meteorologist Michael Mann said the model was too simple as a predictor. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says that U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Andrew Wheeler announced the finalization of a rule that could result in the agency's deeming most new air pollution regulation proposals too expensive to implement. The rule codifies the way the agency will assess the costs and benefits of future Clean Air Act regulations. It will allow the EPA to weigh all economic costs of air pollution regulation while undervaluing health benefits, in effect tilting the scales against the implementation of new policies. It runs counter to the recommendations of the EPA's own Science Advisory Board, headed by Indiana University Professor John Graham, which says any economic analysis of regulations should include indirect as well as direct costs and benefits. Among the changes is a requirement that the EPA consider only a very limited amount of human health evidence in its analysis. Many of Indiana's coal ash sites have left groundwater unfit for human consumption, according to a new report by the Hoosier Environmental Council. And unlike other states dealing with residue from coal-burning power plants, Indiana has taken few steps to stop pollutants from coal ash ponds from seeping further into the water system. Quote, The contrast with other states is stark, end quote, said Dr. Indra Frank, the council's director of environmental health and water policy and co-author of the report. In North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Florida, Tennessee, and Georgia, coal ash is being removed from leaking disposal sites in floodplains and either recycled or taken to lined landfills on higher ground, she said. Another option in practice by some utilities is dry storage of the ash. These other states show how feasible it is, Frank said. In fact, in North Carolina and South Carolina, this process has already been completed for millions of tons of coal ash. Yet in Indiana, the state has started approving plans to leave coal ash in the floodplain and contaminating groundwaters. Of the 86 coal ash ponds in Indiana, 15 are unlined in a 100-year floodplain. Many of these are yards away from a river or lake. Groundwater monitoring results released in 2018 showed 14 of 15 sites in Indiana exceed drinking water limits for molybdenum and lithium, 12 for boron, 11 for arsenic, 10 for sulfate, 6 for cobalt, 4 each for antimony and radium, and 2 each for lead, selenium, and thallium. The maximum concentrations detected often exceeded drinking water standards by many fold, according to the Hoosier Environmental Council report. Since taking office, President Trump and the EPA under his administration have released four revisions to weaken residuals rules. The last revision, announced in October, 
allows for more site-specific management of coal ash so long as the impoundments demonstrate no reasonable probability of adverse effects to human health and the environment. The giant chemical firm Bayer is rolling out a new pesticide, Roundup Power Max 3, which will contain the highest concentration of glyphosate on the U.S. market. The International Agency for Research on Cancer has classified glyphosate, the main active ingredient in Roundup, as, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans, end quote. The chemical also harms ecosystems by eliminating plants like milkweed, the primary food source for the monarch butterfly, and contaminates the ecosystem around it. Since Roundup is applied to crops, residues of the probable carcinogen appear in our food. For instance, a recent study found glyphosate in 80% of non-organic hummus brands tested. Recently, thousands of U.S. residents participated in a class action lawsuit that alleged that Roundup causes cancer. Bayer settled for over $10 billion, but still refuses to acknowledge the pesticide's harms. Two organizations, Environmental Action and the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, are striving to ban glyphosate in the U.S. Here's more on last week's story about elephant deaths. Since the story was written a few weeks ago, there have been updates on why the elephants died. It is now agreed that it was from toxins in algae. That was a thrust of what was reported today, but now there is more evidence. The toxic algae was in abundance because of warmer temperatures. By the way, the Okavango River Delta is interesting because the rains forming it occur in Angola, hundreds of miles north. The rains flatten out on the plains and are typically one to three feet deep. A huge area is covered. It is a bonanza for hundreds of species. The water never makes it to the ocean. The weight of human-made material goods is expected to surpass that of all the people, other animals, and plants by the end of 2020. Researchers at the Wiseman Institute of Sciences in Israel recently published a study in Nature demonstrating that the estimated weight of those human-made objects, or, quote, anthropogenic mass, end quote, is one teraton, or one trillion metric tons. The anthropogenic mass includes buildings, vehicles, roads, plastics, and other materials. The scientists wrote, quote, We find that Earth is exactly at the crossover point. In the year 2020, the anthropogenic mass, which has recently doubled roughly every 20 years, will surpass all global living biomass. On average, for each person on the globe, anthropogenic mass equal to more than his or her body weight is produced every week, end quote. Whereas the anthropogenic mass has increased, the weight of animals and plants has decreased. A United Nations report last year noted that some one million species are at risk of extinction because humans have invaded natural habitats for agriculture and other forms of development, exploited wildlife, and propelled the climate crisis by extracting fossil fuels. Climate action advocates and wildlife defenders celebrated after the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit rejected the Trump administration's approval of Liberty, a proposed offshore oil drilling project in federal Arctic waters that opponents warned would endanger local communities, animals, and the environment. Quote, this is a huge victory for polar bears and our climate, end quote, declared Kristen Monsell. Ocean's legal director at the Center for Biological Diversity in a statement. Quote, 
This project was a disaster waiting to happen that should never have been approved. I'm thrilled the court saw through the Trump administration's attempt to push this project through without carefully studying its risks, end quote. Marcy Kiever, legal director at Friends of the Earth, similarly applauded the reading, saying, quote, Thankfully, the court put the health of our children and our planet over oil company profits, end quote. Both groups joined with fellow advocacy organizations, Defenders of Wildlife, Greenpeace, and Pacific Environment for a lawsuit challenging the Hillcorp Alaska project, which was approved in 2018. The energy company planned to construct an artificial island, wells, and a pipeline along the Alaska coast in the Beaufort Sea. Pesticides are poison, as they're designed to be, but by far the most deadly one used in the U.S. currently is Paraquat, manufactured by Syngenta. As a parting gift to the pesticide industry, the Trump administration's EPA plans to approve the continued use of the pesticide. The European Union, China, and Brazil are among the countries around the world that have banned Paraquat because of its extremely high toxicity. Paraquat isn't just a problem of acute, short-term toxicity. Studies have linked chronic long-term Paraquat exposure to an increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. Furthermore, the pesticide is suspected to be an endocrine disruptor also, wreaking havoc on the hormone system. Despite Paraquat's dangers, its use in this country is greater now than it has been in the past 25 years and continues to increase. The EPA itself has determined that exposure to high levels of paraquat on the job poses serious health risks to farmers and farm workers. Paraquat also harms mammals, birds, and pollinators that forage near paraquat-treated fields. According to the Pesticide Action Network, the measures the EPA intends to deal with those concerns are completely insufficient. The public comment period on the EPA's plan for paraquat is open now. The network insists that nothing short of banning it immediately is adequate. What if President-elect Joe Biden's plan to get to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035 turns out to involve not radical disruption, but a smooth transition? A new paper in the journal Science shows that most of the country's existing coal, natural gas, and oil power plants would be past the end of their expected lives by 2035, leaving only a small share that would need to close early under the Biden policy. Considering this, implementing the Biden plan is probably easier than people expected, said the author, Emily Grubert, an environmental engineering professor at Georgia Tech. By showing when the country's fossil fuel power plants are on track to go offline, the report helps to signal to state and local governments when to prepare to deal with job losses. Most of those job losses would happen regardless of climate policy. The overall takeaway is that we do have time to plan for this, Grubert said. She looked at every one of the 10,435 generating units at power plants that were operating in 2018 and estimated when each would close, based on the typical age of shutdown for other units that used the same technologies. Most large fossil fuel plants have multiple generating units. The plant reaches the end of its life when the last generating unit stops operating. 
Gruber's research is remarkable for its level of detail, allowing her to draw conclusions about fossil fuel power plants across the country in ways that have never been done in quite this way. The jobs lost from these closings are many fewer than jobs created by wind and solar. A group of renowned lawyers has convened to write a legal definition of ecocide. Ecocide, mass damage to and destruction of the world's ecosystems, would take its place alongside war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity as a crime for which the International Criminal Court could prosecute individuals and corporations. The Stop Ecocide Foundation, founded in 2017 by the late UK lawyer Polly Higgins and environmental activist Jojo Mehta, convened the group. Criminal law protects the environment in many nations, and advocates say the time is ripe to incorporate ecocide into international law. The scope of the law has yet to be determined, but it will be based on existing approaches to crimes against humanity and genocide. The group began work on the definition in November and should be able to finish drafting it in early 2021. The definition could become an amendment to the statute of the International Criminal Court, founded in 2002 to try the most serious international crimes, including genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. However, the court does not have jurisdiction over countries that aren't members of it, including China, India, and the U.S. And now for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk about climate activism post-Trump. A diverse panel of climate activists agreed bold action and bilateral collaboration are necessary as the United States takes its first steps in reclaiming climate change leadership amid the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has highlighted the severity of the climate change crisis, said representatives from three climate activist organizations during the virtual America's Role in the World Conference, held by Indiana University's Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Studies December 1st and 2nd. They agreed the Biden administration should take more ambitious action with regards to the fossil fuel industry, the root of the climate change problem to avoid a climate catastrophe, but differed on what steps to take next. This is Katie Eder, co-founder and executive director of Future Coalition. I think that there is a greater understanding of how dire this issue is, and we've all gotten a little taste this year of what it looks like to experience sort of a full-scale societal existential emergency. And so I think that there's a new understanding and, and a new concrete way to look at climate change. And so I think as a society, we need to look around and, and, and it's not just about the government, but it's about every bad actor, you know, who's continuing to enable the fossil fuel industry and calling them out for what they are as, you know, villains of the story that are funding and, and continuing to enable the destruction of our future. Edder discussed the future of climate activism during the Biden administration and beyond with co-panelist Catherine Coleman-Flowers, founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, and Kara O'Brien, founding president of Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends. The discussion was moderated by Janet McCabe, professor of practice at the IU McKinney School of Law and director of the IU Environmental Resilience Institute. Climate change is driven by human activity. Massive amounts of greenhouse gases produced by industrial sources, passenger vehicle exhaust, and other sources trap heat in the atmosphere, causing serious changes in the Earth's climate. Those changes like rising global average temperatures, rising sea levels, and increased extreme weather events like hurricanes have changed the way people live and work around the world. Here in Indiana, the average annual temperature has risen 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit since 1895, and the average annual precipitation has increased by 5.6 inches, 
falling in shorter but heavier rain events that increase the likelihood of flooding. The changes are already affecting the health of Hoosiers and people around the world. In the past two decades, heat-related deaths for older people have almost doubled in the U.S. Extreme heat has also caused the loss of 2 billion potential hours of labor in the service, manufacturing, agricultural, and construction sectors. This is Kara O'Brien, a self-proclaimed conservative. In my experience, climate is very much a generational issue. There's a lot of consensus among young people about the science, at least what's happening. I find the more difficult and interesting conversations come when we start to talk about solutions. And honestly, I'm just very happy that we've come to a point where we're having conversations about solutions. O'Brien favors pragmatic action that she said can realistically unite various interests, albeit on a smaller scale than moonshot national legislation. Her organization fully supports the Baker-Schultz Carbon Dividends Plan, a plan authored by former Secretaries of State and Secretary of Treasury James A. Baker III and George P. Schultz. The plan calls for a gradually rising fee on carbon emissions, the elimination of much of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's regulatory authority over carbon dioxide emissions, and the end of the federal and state tort liabilities for emitters. So the plan that I support is authored by the Climate Leadership Council. It has the backing of a whole host of industry leaders, both on the energy side of things, but also in the innovation sphere, as well as organizations that are in conservation specifically. And so I think that that sort of weird, odd bedfellows model of getting everyone to the table to actually talk about solutions that can be supported, even if they're not these moonshot, like, you know, dream solutions. Edder and other activists want the Biden administration to act immediately to cut off the source of greenhouse gas emissions powering climate change. They want Biden to declare a national climate emergency, reinstate the crude oil export ban, halt fossil fuels lease sales and permits, ban fracking on federal lands, issue stringent pollution prevention rules for oil and gas, and many other fossil fuel limiting executive actions. Flowers, a former teacher, author, and environmental activist who served on the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force on Climate Change, said she believes addressing the environmental justice issues posed by the fossil fuel industry is a crucial first step to dealing with climate change. We cannot have climate justice without dealing with environmental justice. She says areas like Louisiana's Cancer Alley are a Disney world of petrochemical plants that produce gases and chemicals that harm the environment and people living near the plants. Limiting emissions from plants in environmental justice communities could improve the health of those residents, while also reducing the plant's contribution to climate change. Flowers said Americans are seeing what government inaction and ambitious half-step measures do during a crisis. COVID has shown us what not doing anything leads to. It leads to more deaths. And a lot of the people that have died have been those individuals that have lived next to these dirty plants that are also causing climate change. So I think if we have to, if we see we're doing nothing, we're doing nothing with raw, COVID is a, is a great example of that. But in terms of what this president can do is use all the powers, that, all the executive powers that he has to be able to, to move the needle as it relates to climate change and reaching out to those communities that need to be cleaned up. Edder said the COVID-19 crisis has shown that Americans, from the president to individuals in society, are not prepared to handle existential threats like the virus or climate change. President-elect Biden has released a plan that outlines his proposals for combating climate change. The Biden Plan for a Clean Energy Revolution and Environmental Justice sets a 2050 goal for a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions. The plan also sets a goal to stand up to the abuse of power by polluters in minority and low-income communities. It's unclear how much Biden will be able to accomplish. 
two runoff elections for U.S. Senate seats in Georgia may be the deciding factor. A Republican-controlled Senate could be hostile to any attempts at legislation attempting to take actions against the fossil fuel industry. O'Brien said whatever action the president-elect takes once he takes office will have to be bipartisan in order to cause lasting change. Having that weird coalition to put all of their lobbying power behind a legislative plan that can't just be repealed by the next administration is crucial. Because that's my big fear, is that if we have a president who takes executive action on issues like this, that could just be repealed by the next administration. There is nothing stopping the next Republican president from saying, you know what, I don't like that. And that's why bipartisan buy-in is so crucial and a legislative solution is the way to go on this problem. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. Join a fun hike to Kelp Village for the holidays at Brown County State Park on Saturday, December 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. Meet at the Straw Lake parking lot and head down the road to see some old homesteads as well as the village area. Be prepared for the weather and off-trail terrain. There will be a waterfowl viewing day at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, December 19th from 10 a.m. to noon. Join the naturalist at the Goose Pond Visitor Center to watch one of North America's greatest migration spectacles. Enjoy a short presentation about waterfowl, then carpool to view many species of ducks and geese as they stop over on their way south. Registration is required at Waterfowl Viewing underscore goosepond.eventbrite.com. Masks are required inside the visitor center. Learn how to identify trees in the winter at a Winter Tree ID workshop on Sunday, December 20th at 2 p.m. at McCormick's Creek State Park. You will receive guidelines to help you identify the trees around you. The program will be held in the Nature Center's program room, so you must wear a mask at all times. Celebrate the winter solstice at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, December 20th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Meet Tony at the Twin Caves parking lot for a long 2.5-mile hike on the shortest day of the year on Trail 3, which is partially rugged. So dress for the weather and wear a mask. Take a full cold moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 26th from 7 to 7.30 p.m. Enjoy this short, easy hike while you learn why the full moon is called the full cold moon in its history and folklore. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. 
and this is EcoReport. Patrick Callanan wrote the script and Linda Green edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.